Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, we are joined by a great guest today. I'm very excited for this, John Swen. So John, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. So uh, hello, everyone. My name is John Swen, and I am an audiologist and currently a fourth year PhD candidate at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. And I also train uh, with Frank, Dr. Frank Lynn at the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health at the Bloomberg School for Public Health as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is going to be a great conversation. There's so much that I want to dive into. But, you know, as we were talking before we started recording, I mean, I think the the thing about this podcast is really for it to kind of be a, you know, who's who in this world and and really understand what you're doing, but more importantly, who you are. And so I figure, why don't we just start from the top? Um, Tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously you've just already mentioned that you work with Frank Lynn, you're at Johns Hopkins. So let's go back in time a little bit and talk about how did this come to be? You can go back as far as you want, you know, but I would love to kind of hear about your journey of, of how you came into this world and then how you ultimately landed into where you are today. Sure. So I will start with a little bit about just where I'm from. So I was born in uh, Queens, New York, and I was raised uh, in the New York City area and the suburbs as well. And I basically my first encounter with hearing loss was actually within my family and members of my family, uh, once they reach uh, in their 50s, which is still relatively early for what we would call age related hearing loss, usually usually in their 50s, people in my family started to have uh, slow onset hearing loss. And so it was something that growing up, we just knew was present in my family. And I was also raised by my grandmother who lived with us. And so it was very evident to me from the beginning that hearing loss not only impacted communication, but it, in- it impacted interpersonal dynamics across people. And so to be honest, though, I never really thought of it as a condition that's, you know, healthcare providers need to address. A part of that, probably like what many Americans uh, experience, is that we didn't see it as something that needed Mm -hmm. to be addressed. It wasn't, it was something that we perceived as, you know, a part of getting older. Like I mentioned, it's something that we noticed coming up when people in my family got older. So we had this biased perspective that, you know, once you get older, this is just what happens. There's nothing necessarily you can do about it or need to do about it. And so I, I you know, that, that kind of primed my um, perspective of hearing as just a condition you live with, not necessarily something that needs to, you need to run to the doctor about, right? However, like I mentioned, I noticed it impacted interpersonal dynamics. And so when I actually went to undergrad, I eventually became a speech language and hearing sciences major. So I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, Dave, that I had a conventionally unconventional path to where I am now. (laughs) And the conventional part is that my undergraduate studies was in speech and language hearing sciences, which is the 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 pre the the pre-professional track that a lot of people who end up going on to become a speech language pathologist or an audiologist would study. 
And through my studies, I actually uh, became much more interested in speech language pathology at the time. And a part of that upon reflection was really just because I grew up in a multilingual home. And so from a very early age, I was not only a very inquisitive child, I was always that kid that asked all the adults why, why, and follow-up <laughs> whys. So I was that annoying kid. And I was fascinated by specifically how the different languages that I was growing up around communicated the same concepts, but in different ways. And so I had that appreciation for communication and the, the, the interesting nuances of human connection through communication. And so that's what kind of drew me to speech language pathology at first. However, while I was an undergrad, I also uh, found my way over to the deaf studies department at the School of Education. And this was a department that focused on deaf education and through sign language. And so that was my introduction to American Sign Language through undergrad. It actually started out as just a general elective requirement, ASL1. And I took it. And I mentioned to you, I had this fascination with languages as a kid. And so my mind was just absolutely blown by this introduction of this visual spatial um, language. And so I, you know, ended up getting more involved with the Deaf Studies Department and eventually finished up with the minor in Deaf Studies. And so, whereas I was sort of socialized into thinking that I will go on to grad school for speech language pathology, there were people in my life who started to say, well, why not audiology? I mean, you seemed very connected to the Deaf community and Deaf studies. And even though it was a very different model of hearing loss, that is more of a social cultural model as opposed to a medical model, there nevertheless was a connection that I seemed to have um, during my college years. And so I, you know, was people were trying to convince me to consider audiology. And, you know, as a 21 year old at the time, I was very intimidated by the idea of grad school because I wasn't ready for grad school, frankly, at that point. I didn't feel completely invested in speech pathology. Uh, and audiology was something that I had really just learned a little bit about. Um, perhaps a lot of other listeners who had a similar major can attest to this, that a lot of these uh, speech language, uh, these, these pre-professional um, tracks, it, it heavily emphasized, at least for me, a lot more speech pathology than audiology. And so long story short, it was actually my junior year of, of college that I uh, knew somebody at the time who was applying to the Peace Corps for after graduation. And up until this point in my life, I had never considered uh, Peace Corps. I had never even at this point really gone abroad. Uh, aside from like Canada and that was it. And so I was curious about it. And I went onto the webpage for Peace Corps, peacecorps.gov. And out of nowhere, the first thing that appeared on the home screen was this banner that said, learn Kenyan sign language. Oh. And it was essentially advertising a deaf education program in Kenya, which uh, the Peace Corps had been working with since the early nineties. And so I thought to myself, this is something that's interesting. And I read more about it. I read more about Peace Corps, spoke to more people who had done Peace Corps, even spoke to a Peace Corps recruiter. And I thought, this is it. This is what I need. I need to learn more about the world as somebody who you know, grew up in New York. I went to college in Boston. 
I, I only been to Canada. Uh, I have very limited world exposure. And so I thought this was a good opportunity plus to apply some of my training and deaf studies in American Sign Language um, to work in a deaf education, um, deaf education sector in, in a school setting. And so that's what I ended up doing at, at the time when I applied for Peace you couldn't choose where you wanted to go. That's a little different now. At the time, it was sort of like you apply, you sort of, sh you know, show what skills you have. They do all their background checks and all their vetting and whatnot, and then they find a program to place you in. But I went into my interview basically being like, this is my skill set. I know American Sign Language. I have some um, classroom experiences in, in a deaf classroom. And I, um, you know, I, listed out a few other of my skill set and the recruiter was like yeah sure this sounds like a great <laughs> fit for you and so that's what I did after college I went uh to the Peace Corps in Kenya which was one of the most amazing experiences um for me you learn a lot I'm sure uh, other listeners who may be RPCVs or return Peace Corps volunteers themselves will know that it's a pretty life-changing experience but it also gives you an appreciation for what doesn't work in the mm. world and what uh, what approaches to working with a community other than your own may or may not work. And also going into a different community from your own, whether that's abroad or domestically, realizing that you have your own worldview and you have your own bias that you're bringing into it. For and sure. that will impact the way you approach a project. And if you don't involve the direct stakeholders or the direct beneficiaries of whatever you're working on in the process of whatever project you're working on, it's, it's highly likely will fail. It's unsustainable. And so that, that was an appreciation I get got from the Peace Corps, this idea of working with direct stakeholders um, involving uh, direct beneficiaries in any projects and development of something new. But then after the Peace Corps, you know, I, I had that realization that, okay, I, I should really start, you know, looking at, you know, more, more options that can launch me further in my future. And so I, I thought, okay, now's the time for grad school. And at this point, I was much more enthusiastic about going for audiology and consistent with my exposure to the deaf community, deaf culture and ASL, I applied to the AUD program at Gallaudet University in DC, which awesome. is a predominantly deaf university and primarily uh, ASL is the language on that campus. And so that's what brought me to audiology. And now the next phase, I guess, of my, my story is, you know, how did I go for, from a clinical training uh, how, how did I go from, you know, a program that trained me to work clinically to suddenly going into public health? It really kind of started with my, um, my uh, internships when I was working clinically as a student clinician. And while, you know, clinical audiology that we learn, a lot of these principles and methods are absolutely important and they have a place, I personally couldn't help but notice that the populations that we were often serving, and oftentimes it was people from um, minoritized backgrounds, um, black and brown folks, Spanish speakers particularly, that I, I just couldn't help but notice that as, a, as an anecdotal trend, they weren't achieving what we would define as success with hearing aids or success with any sort of rehabilitation options. And 
it was something that stuck with me, frankly. It was something that I didn't quite know how to conceptualize or how to address. And I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that what I know now um, is that it was the social determinants of health that we as audiologists were not trained, at least I was not trained, to consider and integrate into sort of any, uh, any sorts of rehabilitation plan. And so, however, I, I didn't have this terminology at the time. I didn't have this concept at the time um, in how I was approaching clinical work, but I noticed a lot of things that I'm sure a lot of other audiologists have noticed themselves. Either people were, are chronically no-shows or they're chronically late, or they just sort of are lost to follow up. You know, many of us have had that experience. And I was just that person who remember as a kid, constantly inquisitive, couldn't help but just wonder, well, why is that? Why? What is why? happening? <laughs> why? Exactly. Why is this happening? Like it's, and I personally just, it, what was not good enough for me was this answer of, well, that's just the way it goes sometimes, which understandably, I, I, I understand that's a reasonable assumption. But for me as a like highly inquisitive person, it for some reason just didn't satiate that curiosity of why is this happening? And so after I finished my training, I you know, was in this position of, okay, so what do I do next? Do I go for a job? Do I go back to school? What do I do? There's, there's a lot of training, a lot of specialized training I have now as an AUD prepared audiologist, but I personally couldn't shake those questions of why, why is this happening? Why is it that the people that we know could very much benefit from our services, from the care we're trained to provide, why is it that they're not succeeding? Or why is it that they're not adopting? Or why is it not sustainable? And that's when I eventually found my way actually over to a postdoctoral fellowship with Franklin. And this was before the establishment of the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health. This was still the, the Lynn Research Lab at this point. Mm. And uh, I got connected to Franklin because my old department chair, Dr. Matthew Backey, uh, was actually on an advisory board for a project that Frank was uh, the PI for. And the project specifically was about, how, you know, how do we address hearing health disparities in the community, particularly among older adults with low income and predominantly from minoritized backgrounds. And so, I thought, wow, this, this kind of meets a lot of the questions or tries to answer a lot of the questions that I had. And in, particularly, uh, in, in particular, uh, trying to def, de, uh, dis, develop a new model of hearing care. Admittedly, that was something when I first started, I still didn't really understand what that meant because I had been trained in AUD school from a very sort of, um, a narrow path, if I will say, and I'm not yeah. saying that that's, I, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that's a bad way of a training, but it's, it was one approach to providing hearing care, and it was the only approach we were trained to provide hearing care. And while there is a place and a, a need for that type of approach, it wasn't meeting everybody's needs, and it wasn't helping everybody uh, the way that they needed to be helped or supported. And 
that was something that I realized through working on this project. And like I mentioned before, this my my perspective from Peace Corps of when you go into a community that's not your own and you're trying to develop something new, you gotta involve the people that are the target beneficiaries in that process. Cause they'll tell you how it is. They'll tell you why it doesn't work or what doesn't work. And you'll you'll be the one that has to try and collaborate with that and work with it. Um, and so that's how I, uh, was introduced to the field of public health, and in this case, working with Frank Lynn, adapting it to this context of hearing care and hearing loss as a public health issue rather than a medical issue. And then when I started with Frank Lynn, I had mentioned to him that I do have aspirations for PhD studies. Um, I, I really did enjoy research, but I didn't know what I wanted to study my PhD in yet. And so that was a part of my my charge from Frank actually during my postdoc was you know you're working on this project with me you're you're learning a lot of new things as well but on the side I want you to be meeting with other faculty members from different schools to be figuring out when you apply for PhD studies where what do you want to apply it uh, what what do you want to focus on and that particular study again it was a community-based hearing care study addressing hearing health disparities we had an advisory board with various faculty members from across Hopkins and other institutions. And there were prominent uh, representation of faculty from the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, particularly faculty who had experience and expertise in community-based behavioral interventions. And it was the way that they answered my questions and then the way that they posed follow-up questions that really I, 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 it resonated with me. It sort of gave me an insight into how um, these faculty members who, coming, who are coming from a nursing perspective are looking at these public health issues, are looking at social determinants of health, and are looking at what are community-based solutions that can address the gaps. That resonated with me. And so I remember going to Frank, whom up until this point, by the way, throughout my postdoc, both he and I had made this assumption that my PhD would be something within public health, whether that's epidemiology, whether that's um, social behavioral interventions, whether that's um, uh, 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 health communications or whatnot. And then I went to him and I was like, how do you think nursing sounds for me, actually? And he lit up. He was like, I. I can't believe I didn't think of that. That makes a lot of sense for you. And I, I, I you know, checked with um, my nursing advisors at the time. And I said, you know, would you guys accept a PhD student without a nursing background? And sure enough, they do. And that particular faculty member that I asked uh, is now my uh, nursing advisor for my PhD as well. So there was a little bit of a uh, full circle with that there. And that's where I am now. I uh, am now primarily studying hearing loss as a public health through a public health lens, but with a nursing uh, uh, bent to it. And with nursing, it's it's there's a because nursing also is a clinical field. There is a little more of an emphasis on, you know, so how do we address this as a you know from an intervention perspective, but also nursing as a field historically has been able, has been you know has needed to take care of patients with limited resources and particularly low resource settings and so 
they had that particular expertise as well. And so, yeah, uh, that's that's the very quick little nutshell about how I end up where I am now. John, that's a really cool story. I, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I have a bunch of questions along the way, but I want to stick on what you just mentioned with nursing. I think this is super fascinating. So um, what was the aha moment for you where you ultimately decided it sounded like you sort of were kind of going through this period of contemplation? What am I going to do my, um, you know, my PhD in? What was the light bulb moment for you? And it seems like you're really confident in your decision. So help to help us to understand this a little bit more about what this whole intersection of like the nursing component means yeah. for what you're doing. So one of my um, uh, academic and personal mentors, uh, Dr. Sarah Zanton, who's now the Dean of our School of Nursing, actually, she is world renowned for a program, an intervention that she created uh, called Capable. And the, uh, the, the goal of Capable is to promote aging in place, as in older adults, um, aging in their own homes and uh, not rushing to essentially institutionalize them in a nursing home if they have limitations. And so promoting aging in place, there's you know, a lot of research that shows how it's cost effective and also it's most often what people want themselves. She created a program that was innovative in that it targeted older adults with low income who had, who had disability and she described in her experiences, uh, you know, as when she was a nurse practitioner who was doing home care, these were uh, patients who couldn't leave their room and so would have to drop the house key out the window for her to enter the house. Um, and Capable essentially is a team with a nurse, uh, a handy person, and an occupational therapist that works with older adults with disabilities to uh, help set goals and help modify their home. So that's through the consultation with the OT and as well as a handy person who can make these home modifications that promotes um, aging in place. And so this model of multidisciplinary team, uh, community-based, working directly in the environment, the home environment of an older adult, that was something that I looked at and I thought, if we're talking about how highly prevalent hearing loss is within older adults, this team could potentially have an audiologist someday. Love and yeah, this team could have an audiologist. And in fact, not just this program, the capable program in general, but what about other community-based programs that are working with older adults? Audiologists were, were highly trained to address hearing loss and communications. We should be the ones that are present in these spaces with these teams doing this kind of work. And we're not. It's not anything I ever heard, learned about in, in AED school about community-based intervention, about working with people in their home settings, working with other um, uh, specialties besides SLPs and ENTs, but a nurse, an OT, um, or a geriatrician, working with these other disciplines to essentially provide more holistic care for patients. I absolutely love this. I think this is so fascinating because first of all, I think aging in places, it's a trend that's only going to become, I think, more prevalent. Um, you know, I think it's already really popular. I think most people would prefer to live in their, their residence for as long as possible. And so I love this idea of being part of a team that 
um, you know, you, you're, it's community-based, like you said. And I think that, you know, I just came from a show, actually, Frank was there. Um, it was the FCOM show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the theme there was around the whole um, brain and hearing, you know, link. And, you know, I think that this is something that needs to be more widely understood within the public domain, which is that, you know, hearing loss is usually, uh, you know, whether it's causation or correlation, I'm not sure, but there's obviously a link to a lot of these uh, cognitive issues. And, and so I think that having that sort of uh, approach where it comes at it from, look, we're a team, we're going to, we're trying to enable it so that you can continue to age in place. You can do what you want to do. Um, but these are things that we need to really understand about you. And I think that in that setting, it elevates the audiologist in such a way where it's much more holistic. It's about, okay, obviously your, your hearing is one aspect of this, but it's a portal into something much bigger. It's a portal into your cognition. You know, are you, suffering in any way from early onset of dementia, you know, are there worrying signs there or can we check the box and say like, this is, this is all really good. Um, so I think that that's an absolutely fascinating approach because I think it ties into this like broader theme that seems to kind of have this like undercurrent right now within the profession, which is there, there really is like this opportunity, I think for audiologists, broadly speaking, to really elevate the conversation to be much, much more than just hearing loss and like, as if hearing loss is isolated in its own thing. So for me, this is really, really cool and exciting. And I think it's innovative because to your point, I think it can really scale in such a way where we could see this be something that's highly prevalent as more people want to age in place. They have this kind of team. I just think that's really, really neat. And what I would encourage other uh, people to also consider is, you know, I think it's, it would resonate with audiology as a profession to consider outcomes other than what people can hear with a hearing aid in a soundproof room. You know, those are the metrics, those are the metrics we've been trained to, to collect and use as markers of, oh, it works. But it is also consistent with audiology training, particularly with rehab, AR, um, AR, that we look at, okay, so where are you having communications issues? And what are um, the limitations in that particular setting that I can work with you on and can maybe we can strategize together? That at the heart, at the heart of that kind of approach to rehab is what is this particular client's goal? What is that what is it functionally in their life that they are currently limited in being able to do and the audiologist can advise and counsel them accordingly. So this idea of, you know, going to multidisciplinary team that's community-based that focuses on goal setting and, you know, functional outcomes, it's, it's totally vi- it vibes, I think, with what audiologists are able to do. But because we've become so we've become so wrapped up in a medical model and a medical approach to hearing loss. That's what we end up focusing on is, you know, this is what your, you know, pure tone average was unaided. Let me put the aids on you, put you back in the soundproof room and let me see what your, what your PTA is now, you know, with the aids on. 
Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you here. And and this is a it's a, a really interesting distinction too, like what you're describing as sort of this medical approach as opposed to this community approach. Really, the first time I was exposed to this myself was when I was talking to your colleague Nick Reed. And Nick was really adamant about this too, which is like community intervention and this idea of it's part of a bigger thing. It's it's less about how well they can hear. And I think that's a big part of it, but I think it more importantly, it's about how they're engaging with their environment around them. And so I think that this whole, you know, distinction is really important because I think, again, I think there's a number of sort of subtle things that go on when you take this different approach, just as you mentioned, it's a little bit more collaborative with other, you know, specialty doctors. So I'm curious, like I can kind of see how a lot of the audiology profession might think about this, but what's been your initial reception and, and I guess maybe what you're aspiring toward with how nurses perceive this, how those occupational therapists perceive this. I mean, it seems obvious to me that this is a perfect sort of fit into this little ecosystem here, but what's been like the reception that you've had from some of these specialty doctors? So when I speak to other people with uh, different clinical backgrounds, um, who all, all of us work with older populations, it's like the moment I say I'm an audiologist and that I, you know, specialize in hearing loss, everybody's eyes, everybody, everyone's eyes just kind of like light up to be like, oh my God, yeah, I, I confront hearing loss a lot. Totally. You know, I, I see it in my pop, in my client population or my patient population a lot. It's hearing loss is not something that people never encounter if they're working with older adults in a, in a, in a healthcare or just in a public health context. And so when they see me there, the reception is, you know, uh, sort of like they're happy. They're like, oh my goodness, thankfully we have you here to work on this because it's clearly something that we encounter, but we move on with other things because it's not something that we have the tools or the expertise right. to address. And so, you know, this is my spin on it, but whenever I hear people kind of, you know, their faces light up, they're like, oh my God, I encounter hearing loss all the time. I hear a follow-up in my mind, which is, where have you been this whole time? <laughs> yeah. and, and I kind of asked that of my fellow audiology professionals, like, where have we been? We've just been in the clinic. We've been, right. in, you know, in the hospital settings. We are focusing on, you know, audibility with hearing aids or cochlear implants, and, and that's it. We're not actually out working with people who are looking at other outcomes and then, you know, supporting them towards those outcomes with our particular expertise. And the, the irony is that there's this narrative and I'm not pointing fingers or anything like that, but there's this, uh, there's this sort of, um, theme right now that the world of hearing healthcare is, is sort of like being disrupted or it's under attack and that they're, you know, that there's going to be like this shortage of patients. And I think that it's the furthest thing from that. I think that there's not nearly enough audiologists out there. Uh, to service all these people when you really, like you said, get out of the clinic and you see, you know, how often does the occupational therapist or the nurse encounter these obstacles that are really challenging to them that you could be the remedy for. And so I think that the opportunity is like 100% there, but I think it takes an entirely new mindset into like, all right, you know, and I guess maybe my question to you so that this is productive is, 
what would you recommend for somebody that maybe is a legacy call it, you know, I've been in practice for 10 years and I, and I do spend the bulk of my time in a clinic. How can you get more involved in more of this community approach? Like, are there simple things that, that can be done? Sure. So first, I, I just want to take a moment to speak specifically to other audiologists who, you know, may have the sense of anxiety of, you know, our, our field is, our, our world is being disrupted with a lot of other things that are happening right now. I, I empathize that audiologists, particularly in large medical settings, which is predominantly where my trainings have been set in, we're busy throughout the day. We're constantly on our feet. We're seeing sure. clients after clients after clients. We're, we're, we're getting, you know, add-on um, from the ENTs for audiograms, and we're constantly busy. And so I have empathy that, yes, like we see a lot of patients, and through those experiences, we, we, uh, it informs our perceptions of what patients need. But I would encourage everyone to kind of take a step back and just kind of entertain this idea for a moment that the people we're seeing isn't representative of the entire population. And the people that we are, that we are busy seeing every hour throughout the day, five days a week, if not more, they are a very small sliver of the population who would benefit from the types of services or the type of care that we would recommend and or advise. And so I, 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 the, the reason why I want to say this is because I think there's a lot of um, implicit and as well as explicit resistance to embracing new models when, I, you know, when we talk about community-based um, models of care. It's, it's like I said before, the model that we were, most of us, if not all of us are trained to provide, it, it's necessary, it's needed, but it's not the one that fits everybody's needs. And so kind of building off of what you said, by changing the field, it's really just opening it up, opening the types of people that we are qualified to work with even more. And so for the, the clinician who is predominantly still clinic-based and is wondering, you know, what they could um, do or contribute or, you know, to, to the emergence of these alternative community-based models is I would say, you know, take a step back and consider, like, what are your metrics of success? How are you, um, how are are you defining success with your clients? Is it just audibility? Is it that they are able to repeat a set of words, more, um, more words in a quiet soundproof setting with their aids on? Because if it is, that's, that's, that may not be what their goals are. And it may inadvertently be contributing to some clients having a perception of, you know, I, I'm not sure if this is actually uh, uh, worth it for me. I'm not sure if this is actually giving me what I need. And so think about the bigger picture of how what, how what we were trained to provide can actually enhance and improve people's lives. And then, you know, let that be the North Star in guiding how you would approach your rehabilitation services. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, um, it's a really interesting thought because I think that on one hand, there are, there's, there is the like, current model that is very taxing. And so I think there is a challenge of like, I'm, you know, I only have enough time in the day. And so what can I do? And I think that, you know, I think maybe even just having 
the, the you know being engaged within this community outreach effort it allows for you to um, almost delegate some of your expertise to some of these other professionals so that you're almost training them in a way where the nurse is more equipped to how they can handle these things, the occupational therapist, whoever it might be. So I, I feel like you have such a specific and much needed skill set, And it's a matter of how do we make that proliferate? How do we make that more accessible? And it obviously can't just be that you are going to be in all these places at once. You have to almost somehow take that like knowledge and that expertise and you, and you have to like share it in such a way. And so I figure that might be part of it is that, you know, and and this is what's so fascinating to me about what you're doing, which is, it seems like it's really trying to help be the expert within your field of study, but be engaged in such a way to where it's more communal amongst these other professionals so that they're able to, you're, you're imparting a lot of that knowledge on them and that they can then kind of represent that when you're not there as well. Right. And I also want to take a moment to just acknowledge that this medical model of hearing care provided by audiologists, it's upheld that way by policy, right? I, I, I want to acknowledge that we as audiologists are working within a healthcare reimbursement system that doesn't incentivize um, or yeah. support, you know, us in uh, changing our practice. And so that's why I uh, admire the works that, you know, the faculty here at the Cochlear Center are doing, which is not only are they collecting, you know, uh, you know, conducting epidemiologic um, studies, but they're doing so to influence policy, to change policy. Because if you can change the policy, the, the, the framework that, that clinicians like audiologists have to work within, if you change it at that level, the idea is that it trickles down and it en- enables the audiologist who does have interest and a heart to, you know, go community-based or, you know, think about other types of um, outcome metrics. It, en- it enables and supports them to be able to do that. And so I want to acknowledge that I... I don't think that the majority of audio, this is just my, my opinion, I don't think the majority of audiologists don't want to help more people. It's that we are working within a system that conspires us to not do so. Yes, couldn't agree more. And that's why I think what Frank's team is doing with the ACHIEVE trial is so important. I mean, I think it's crazy to me, and I've said this before, but like the fact that the, that, that when you go and you see a physician, you know, your, your family physician, that you don't have a annual hearing test in the same way that you get your blood pressure taken. It's wild. And so to your point, the policy is extremely important here, because I think that if, if, if there can be, if the achieved trial is able to really demonstrate that there are, you know, basically that that needs to, to be taking place. Um, I mean, that's what would influence the policy here. And that's just one small example of this. But I agree with you that the the frustrating part of all of this is that, I mean, having talked to a lot of professionals, the, the commonality is everybody, there's a very altruistic streak across this profession. Many, many of the people I've talked to would be more than happy to, to help as many people as possible, but they are sort of confined to the model of like, this is how you generate revenue. This is the current way in which business exists and they're handcuffed in such a way to that. And so I think that 
that's what's really exciting, in my opinion, though, about kind of what's on the horizon right now, whether it's going to be what hopefully comes through the door with the Medicare expansion and what that ultimately might look like, things like what you're all working at, Johns Hopkins, through things like the Achieve trial, because I agree, I think that policy is a massive part of this. And I think that most people that you know are listening to this are probably not any long being like, I wish that I could be doing more of this. And, and so it's it's a challenge. And, and that's why I'm trying to almost find a happy medium is to say, you know, even in your current model, like what can you do to at least get the ball rolling a little bit, to be a little bit more engaged, maybe overall with the the broader healthcare community in your in your environment. Because I think again, going back to what you said earlier, when you're talking about where have you been? You know, I think that it's, I think it's such a pervasive thing that they deal with older adults. Like we all know that older adults obviously comprise the bulk of the the hearing loss population. So it's common that they're running into these issues and those issues tend to probably lead to all kinds of different frustrations for those professions as well. So I, I, it's like, this is such a much needed thing. And it's a matter of how, how do you make this something that is more widely accessible? That's the big million dollar question I feel like we're dealing with. For sure. For sure. And then, um, like I said, when I have been in these other spaces where traditionally a lot of audiologists have not been in and I meet other uh, clinicians and public health scholars that like they they're enthusiastic that we're there that I'm there along with others like you know Nick Reed it's they they know it's an issue they've seen it but we just haven't been they haven't had a means of even start starting to think about a solution most of the times and because they also have their own you know, plate that they have to sort of uh, be addressing with their their um, their project goals and their objectives and their their boxes that they have to check. So when we show up, there's enthusiasm there, and there's support there. And so if anyone um, is interested in you know in going to another in another direction, an unconventional direction, like I like I I've tried going down just know that there will be people that are excited to receive you and excited to hear what your expert, how you can contribute with your expertise. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So um, tell us a little bit about what's kind of going on in, in your world currently. I know that you're involved with a lot of different research. Um, what's really exciting to you right now with, with your personal work and in, in the things that you're focused on? So uh, what I am currently working on is my dissertation research, and it's exciting because it's um, it was disrupted by COVID, and <laughs> so I and so data collection stopped for a while, and so it's exciting because it was on hold, but now I have the data, and so I am doing my um, my analyses right now for the first part of my study. I'm doing a mixed methods. Uh, dissertation. And so I'm doing the quantitative analyses right now. Um, and I'll be doing uh, qualitative interviews um, starting next year. And so that's what I'm working on right now. It's exciting because um, I, I don't know if you have experience with statistical coding, but coding is not something that comes intuitive to me. I, I'll admit, it's not something that is super easy for me. In fact, it's challenging for me, but it's like a puzzle for me, trying to like code uh, 
some code for something trying to it's like learning a new language again i had this fascination early on yep. with language right so it's almost kind of like trying to learn a new grammar and so you know again it's not intuitive to me it's not something that uh is super easy for me but i'd like doing it because it's it's you learn by trial and error and obviously i have the support from you know actual biostatisticians who can support me but it's 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 exciting it's it's like trying to learn again like i said new language um outside of my dissertation research um i like you mentioned and sort of collaborating on other people's research a lot um one of the one of the papers that i was actually just accepted for publications has to do with uh racism and the impact over the life course on the health of older black americans and so that's something that particularly through um and then the, the the senior author of that paper is dean sarah zanton and so having um as somebody who i admire who also you know is my academic mentor thinking about public health from this uh, thinking about public health disparities from uh again through the social determinants of health lens but from um a racial equity and social justice perspective it's something that uh I find fascinating and I'm sure uh, there are a lot of other, as, as you may have even seen yourself, a lot of other conversations that's increasing around this, uh, you know, people calling racism as a public health crisis and whatnot. It's uh, something that I, I reflect on in how do we sort of address this within audiology. And uh, my other colleague, um, Dr. Carrie Neiman and I, we actually have a, a paper in press um, that's trying to take social epidemiology as a as a discipline that really specializes in addressing social determinants of health such as racism as well um and we wrote it from uh for the uh we adapted it excuse me we adapted social epidemiology for hearing health and hearing care for uh a hearing audience that is audiologists and um, auditory scientists and so that's exciting as well. Communicating across disciplines is something that um, I, I find personally really exciting. Yeah, I was going to say, I would say one of the things I really have gathered from you throughout this conversation and getting to know you a little bit before we started recording is you have a real knack. And I don't know if this is something that is really encouraged top down within Johns Hopkins, because I feel like I see this with a lot of the people there. But you all are amazing at cross pollinating ideas across different uh, sort of, you know, I guess professions or, or these like walks of life. I think it's fascinating because to your point, you're, I think by doing that, you're, you're kind of like taking approaches that have never really been taken before. You're looking at things through a totally different lens. And, uh, I just find that to be really interesting because you don't typically hear, you know, these, cross-disciplinary fields as being related. And then it seems like you're doing, you and others, you're really making a concerted effort to find ways in which these things are linked. And, and I think what's really interesting about it is you as an individual are learning about these other disciplines, and then that helps to influence your thinking too. I just find people like that are usually real creative out-of-the-box thinkers because they're not stuck in one way of thinking. They're very much like taking some of the best parts from, 
from some of those around them. So I just want to kind of give a tip of the hat to, to you and some of the others over there that it really does seem like something that's kind of in the water in Baltimore or something that's going on at Hopkins. <laughs> it's, it's a tale as old as time, like with fusion cuisine, right? It, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it's sometimes you just have some, uh, you just, it creates something even better than the original. And so I, I thank you for that. I, I appreciate that acknowledgement. And I have to acknowledge that um, it, it all starts with the top with Frank Lynn. You know, that's something that I remember when I was in the postdoc, pretty fresh out of um, uh, Gallaudet University. That was something that he would like emphatically encourage and emphasize, uh, excuse me, um, he would just repeat again and again is you have to like look at the bigger picture. You have to see what other people are doing. You know, I am an audiologist, but I'm also a gerontologist and a public health scientist. And that can exist. And we are a growing cadre. I'm meeting more and more audiologists who are going back for other degrees, particularly um, with masters of public health. So we are a growing cadre. And I think that is a trend that hopefully will only get um, more and more prevalent because it's, it's where innovation, these intersections are where innovations um, emerges. Okay, a couple last questions as we come to a close here. So going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, you said you grew up in a multilingual home. What languages did you were you exposed to at a young age? So my first language was Mandarin Chinese, like okay. I mentioned. Um, so my, my, my family are immigrants. And so they uh, worked multiple jobs when I, when I was born. Um, and so it was the grandparents that were at home. So mm -hmm. my, my paternal grandparents speak Mandarin Chinese. And so that's what I first grew up speaking. Very cool. um, my, my, my mom uh, speaks Japanese with her side of the family. And so I was also immersed around Japanese. And then my parents speak Taiwanese to each other. Wow. Um, because uh, like Taiwan as, as, mm -hmm. as, as an island is, is multilingual and multi-ethnic um, throughout history. And so in my home growing up, uh, it was Mandarin Chinese, Taiwanese, and Japanese. That's so cool. I'm jealous of you in a way that, uh, you know, I, I would love to have, you know, I, I actually have my sister, um, she married an Argentinian. And so my two nieces are, uh, you know, they're like, two and three and they're exposed to, um, Spanish all the time. And, and they're, um, it's, it's amazing to watch a, a little kid in their, you know, their little brain absorbs a language like a sponge and they're both bilingual already. And it's just incredibly fascinating to watch their brains are really malleable for me. It's like a, it is a Herculean effort at this point in my life to try to learn another language. So I yeah. am envious of those that, are immersed at a really young age. I think that's super cool. I've, I have three toddler nephews as well, and I can relate to the, that experience of you just watch the, their faces when they're speaking to you and you can just, <laughs> you can see them thinking and like putting yeah. the words together and they may use the wrong word, but you knew where they were going. And it's, 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 it's not only adorable, but yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's fascinating. Well. It is. It totally is. Um, Peace Corps. I think that's a, I would love to have honestly had a conversation just about that because that experience is so incredibly fascinating. 
what was that like the first i have a buddy that um his little brother uh he did a similar thing in rwanda and so i've kind of asked him this question but i'm curious like what was the first few days like for you when you went to kenya total culture shock um i mean were you just blown away with just how different that part of the world is or what were kind of your first impressions so when I arrived in Kenya, I was sick. <laughs> I, I actually left the U.S. with a little bit of a cold. And oh boy. so my, my, my first few days was, was miserable because I was trying to get over a cold in a new country. Um, but, you know, after that was over, um, you know, a combination of bewilderment and, you know, uh, anxiety, um, excitement, but fear. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, this was going to Peace Corps was the first time I ever left North America. Yeah. And I, when I look back on it, I have told other people before that it was the, um, the exact kick in the butt experience that I needed as an American 20 something year old who grew up in the suburbs, who went to, you know, a really good college and hadn't been exposed to the Mm -hmm. world that much. It was a kick in the butt It knocked me down, but I needed it. And you grew it, a lot from it. You, you grow a lot from it and you, uh, it just opens your world. Um, it was still to this day, one of the hardest things that I have done so far, but it's also one of, one of the more empowering things that I reflect on that, you know, I was able to do that. It was hard. I, I had my days that was not great, but it, it makes other things a little less scary. Let me put it this way. It makes doing a dissertation here at Johns Hopkins a little less scary as well when I think (laughs) about it. Yeah, exactly. It it toughened you up a little bit, but it it definitely sounds like it shaped shaped your worldview and it shaped you as a person. And that's really cool as well. Um, Yeah, I I just, uh, you're an impressive person, John. I'm great to, I'm, I'm really glad to have had a chance to meet you a little bit through this. Um, definitely following along with what you're doing. So as we come to a closer, any closing thoughts, anything that you want to share as we sort of wrap it up here? Uh, I, you know, am so glad that I got a chance to speak with you further as well, get to know you. It was years ago that you and I first connected over Twitter. And, um, and likewise, you know, over the years, kind of following you on Twitter, kind of see the things that, you know, you you promote and you talk about, um, it resonates with me as well. And, you know, as a, as a sign off, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's the, 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 the field is changing. In fact, change is, is a constant. Change is ongoing constant. And it's exciting. And we have an opportunity to really shape it and define it and how, and, you know, make it into what it will be someday. And so be a part of the conversation, be at the table and participate and some, and, and that, you know, embrace it. It's, it's exciting. And so I, I hope, I hope I see more and more people um, in audiology becoming uh, more interdisciplinary and more transdisciplinary even um, in the years to come. Awesome, John. Thank you so much for coming on. A fascinating story. I'm sure this won't be the last time. We'll have to have another one of these down the line. Once you've finished your dissertation, you've, you know, you're like fully immersed in whatever you're going to do next. But um, really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. And we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Take care, everyone. 
Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.